My name is uh, Bruce O'Neill, and I'm one of the pastors. One of the other pastors, Pastor Greg Doty, as many of you know, is getting ready and preparing to go to Scotland as a missionary from our church. And so we're very excited about uh, Greg's ministry with Leanne over there. But today we happen to have one of his partners in ministry there in Scotland with us. Um, So his name is Jeremy Ross. He's a pastor there of the Free Church of Scotland. And because um, uh, Jeremy is from the Highlands, even though he is close to Edinburgh right now, but if you know the Highlands are closer to the mountains, I thought it would be nice to have our scripture read by somebody with a little better accent than mine. Mine is southern. <laughs> so come, Jeremy, and, and read our passage. It's John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 20 to 33. Well, it's good to be with you. Just before I read the Bible, I want to thank you for welcoming me and uh, for the gift that you're going to send us in Scotland. We appreciate that we need help, and we thank you for being willing to send Greg to us. So please do pray for us, and uh, also uh, thank you for putting on the special choir for me coming. I do appreciate that. <laughs> Let me read from John chapter 12, from verse 20 to 33. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. May God bless his word to us. Thank you, Jeremy. You didn't know you were going to have to work for your food, but that's the way we work around here. Again, we are are delighted to have you, but also delighted that Greg and our church gets to partner with you. And so thank you for being here. Well, I took my shoes off. You can't see in the back because we are on some holy ground this morning. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33 And so let's pray. 
God, would you enable us to hear what we just heard? Would you enable us to want to live what we just heard? And would you empower us by your spirit to live what we just heard? For the sake of your kingdom, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever read a long book? My definition of a long book is more than a thousand pages. Now, for some of us, that's probably been a while. It's probably back in college when something was assigned or maybe in high school was the last time you read a book of that length. But you remember when you're reading that book, you get to a a passage, a particular passage that really moves you. It arrests your heart. You have to stop. And it's because of what you have gone through to get there that it's such an important part of the book because it explains the entire book for you. And typically it's found around a 494 of the book. So you're into it a long way and you can't give up. Well, that's what John 12 is. John 12 is that kind of paragraph, the, pa- the passage we are looking that arrests us because it explains the meaning of the whole Bible. That the whole story that the Bible tells is revealed to us in this passage. That's why we are on holy ground. And if you want a summary of the whole passage that is a summary of the whole book, it's found in verse 24 that Jeremy read to us. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. These words are so powerful that if you understand them, you're going to want them on your gravestone. That's exactly what Vordor Dostoevsky did. One of the greatest writers of the 20th century in Russia, when he died, he was so moved by this passage, the only requirement that he left after his death was that these words, John 12, 24, would be etched on his gravestone. And they are in Russian. It explains to us in a few words why Jesus came and why we are born. But in order to do that, let me explain a few of the words in the passage that might make it a little more opaque, a little more vague, if you don't know what these words impart to us what they mean because we're in the 21st century not in the first century look at verse 27 now is my soul troubled and what shall i say father save me from this hour the word hour in the gospel of john is a technical term he's not talking about a 60 minute period of time He's not talking about an age. He's talking about a specific moment in history, in human history, in the cosmos history. John 2, if you remember back then, it's about a wedding scene where Jesus is being asked by his mother to save the party because it has run out of wine at the reception. And that is an incredible faux pas in their culture. It is the reverse of hospitality. But Jesus' answer is almost shocking to his mother. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? 
My hour has not yet come. How about John 7? It's about the Jewish leaders seeking to arrest Jesus and ultimately have him killed. And John writes this. But no one laid a hand on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. This hour that we're talking about in this passage and those passages refer specifically to Jesus's death. Please understand the gospel of John is not like Matthew, Mark and Luke. Even though John is talking about many of the same events and teachings of Jesus, it is not laid out the same. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they run through the three years ministry of Jesus almost in equal proportions. But not John. John handles the first two years and 11 months in about 11 chapters. And then, beginning in chapter 12, he begins to cover all of Jesus' words and teachings and events of about one and a half days to give the import of the hour. The hour is the death of Jesus. And not only so that we know what he's talking about in John 12, he's talking about his crucifixion, but we also need to know how he feels about it, not just emotionally, but even as he intellectually thinks about this, it says that his heart, my soul, is troubled. Again, this is the eve of his crucifixion, his death. What is he troubled about? Mark's gospel tells us at this moment that Jesus has agony over his death. But he is not merely troubled that he physically is going to be tortured and ultimately crucified in a very painful death. That is to shortchange Jesus' trouble. His trouble is deeper, more profound that. And we kind of can identify with that trouble because we've been talking about this morning about death and how being separated from someone troubles us. And that is what is in troubling Jesus. He dreads the prospect of being separated from the only being he has known for all eternity. As much as we know our parents from birth, when they die, we have known them as long as we have been alive. Which is frankly not all that long. It's not all that long in human history. Imagine if it is long as eternity. The Father and the Son have been in perfect communion and relationship forever. And at the crucifixion, Jesus is separated from his father. Scientists tell us that you can die from a broken heart. Do you recognize that that actually has a name? It's been changed, its meaning, but the name for a broken heart over the loss of a person came out of the 17th century France of a doctor who were noticing people who were homesick dying. And so he gave it a name that that we recognize today, but for a whole different meaning. The French doctor called when someone died of a broken heart, nostalgia. Nostalgia. 
We mean by that simply we miss the past. We miss the good old days. But its original meaning, when it was invented in the 17th century, would simply mean someone died of a broken heart because of the loss of relationship, the separation. And we know that's true. We have evidence of people who die soon after their spouse dies. The dread of losing someone close to you is with us all. Jesus and his father have been together for eternity. The prospect of that separation is overwhelming Jesus right now as it gets closer to the moment that he is separated. This cup, he says, I wish would pass from me in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is saying that this trouble, this separation, not this physical, if all that Jesus was afraid of, if all that Jesus was concerned about, if all that was troubling Jesus was the physical pain, he knew that was going to end. But the separation, that's a different story. Something that the Father and the Son had never experienced. Death. Separation. And Jesus says... In verse 27, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus distills for us in those words his whole mission. I was born to die. And then Jesus says also, Father, glorify your name. And his father says, I have glorified it. I've glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. Verse 28. The word name here means character. It means all that I am. What makes me me is my name. That's why so many were identified by their occupations, like Smith, Brown. So many names that we have were given to us because of what we did. And here Jesus is saying, glorify who you are. Make your name known to the people. Jesus is simply asking the Father in heaven to praise himself, to make much of him through his death. You see, we can't forget the context. He's not saying in general, let everybody know you exist. He specifically is focused upon his crucifixion that's going to happen in one day's time. And he's asking the Father to glorify himself in the death. Do you remember that hymn that has this line in it that says, Mild he lays his glory by. Well, that's true and not true. The hymn is focusing upon the incarnation that that Jesus left heaven and came to earth. And because of that, he laid some things aside in order to live here on earth about who he was. But in a much more profound way, he did not lay his glory by. Because this verse tells us that the glory of God is the cross of Christ. That is that the Father was most glorified, not by the incarnation, 
but the crucifixion. That is, when Jesus hangs on the cross, God is being most glorified. I'll explain that in a moment, but I just want you to feel the weight, the glory of that moment. You see, we tend to think of the cross as a horrible event in human history. In fact, that's the way Psalm, I mean, uh, Isaiah 53 depicts it, or Psalm 22. But Isaiah 53 in particular says that there's nothing about him that is beautiful. Nothing about this experience is going to be commended to us to where we would think this is a handsome being. Literally, Psalm 22 says that he's so deformed by the beatings, he's so deformed by the injury that we can't even tell it's human that is being crucified. He's that far gone. And yet God is saying, Jesus is saying in this passage, or is praying that this would happen, and it does happen, that at that moment when we are so horrified, when we're so grossed out, when we're so nauseated by the cross, that that is the most beautiful event in human history. Why? Not because he's horrible to look at. He is horrible to look at. But because he did it to save us. God so loved us that his own son was crucified. The beauty of the cross is you. You're here today because Jesus was crucified. And because of that, there is great beauty and glory in the cross. Obviously, it's grotesque. Obviously, it's horrible. Obviously, it's ugly. But this is the beautiful paradox of the gospel. That in the midst of that ugly, there's beauty. Because we are saved. Jesus didn't lay it by. He achieved it. He achieved the glory of God as he was lifted up on the cross. Look at verse 32. And when I am lifted up, he's talking about the cross, from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. There's the glory. The cross of Christ is how God is glorified and how he glorifies himself. And you might say, well, a cross is a strange way to bring glory. In fact, it was scandalous in the first century to be crucified. Can you imagine you're a Jew who's been longing for the Messiah to come? And don't think that Jesus is the only Messiah walking around. There were literally dozens of people who said they were the Messiah in the early centuries of existence. As Jesus is even walking the earth, there are other people who are claiming to be the Messiah. But he's the only one that was held up on a cross and crucified. And they thought that was scandalous that a Messiah would hang from a a tree. How can that possibly be? He came to free us from the Romans, not to be executed by the Romans. Imagine the Romans' view of that. How foolish that the king of kings, because that's what he was called, hangs on our tree. He just is a criminal. People ask that same question, not quite like that, because we don't have that heritage of the longing of the Messiah. 
or that idea that he's going to be a political leader for us and free us from oppression. Not that kind of oppression. People still ask today, what kind of God sacrifices his own son? Or how can an innocent man die to appease what appears to be an angry God because he kills his own son? It's a fair question. Particularly if you don't understand Christianity, if you think that Christianity is one thing. But the Bible says what Jesus did when he died was not so that God could love us. That is, somehow he made some kind of appeasement to God so that God could look at us and love us. The Bible says that Christianity says that Christ died because God loved us. It is because he already loved us from eternity. Which means before we ever existed, before one human being walked on the earth, God loved us. And that this is a plan of salvation between the Father and the Son. They're one on this with the Spirit. They're one on this about how to save us. God has got to punish injustice. Because... So much injustice in our world is happening and it doesn't seem like there's anyone holding them accountable. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people on this planet are committing injustices, sometimes systemically, sometimes individually, but many acts go unaccountable to government or to anyone If God is not going to hold that account, then what hope do we have of ever getting justice in this world for anyone? If there's not a God who's going to hold everyone in every system accountable for injustice. Because God isn't merely the judge. He is the definition of justice. It is his character. And therefore, all injustices must be righted no matter when they happened in human history, and no matter who did them. Everyone will be held accountable. And what our, what our text teaches us is that God absorbed the punishment for the injustices in this world, in his own life. You see, we tend to think forgiveness are mere words that we say. But way more than simply somebody saying, I forgive you, is that they absorb the cost of the sin, of the trespass, of the injustice in themselves. The refusal to make the victimizer pay for what the victim experienced is forgiveness. And that is not a mere decision you make one time, but every day. Every moment you want to make the person who victimized you pay and instead absorb the cost yourself by not making them pay is to take the punishment in yourself. And that is forgiveness. And that is what Jesus did on the cross in our place. And so he's not an angry God who's looking for an appeasement. He's a loving God who absorbed the cost of our sin in himself. Jesus is not sacrificed so that God would love us. Jesus was sacrificed because God loved us. I told you, you should have taken your shoes off. We're on holy ground here. 
Friends, where we are walking this morning, Jesus can't bear the alienation, but he does it for you and for me. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Glorify your name. A God who is willing to come and die for you. How much does God love you? There should be no doubt or question in this room after reading John chapter 12. Jesus is saying, I wish I was not going to do this. It troubles me. It agonizes me. But I do it so that God might be glorified. That his name might be praised. When you sing, when we sing together, that should excite our hearts. Not because merely that we sound good, but because we are praising God. And every time we hear about someone else who previously did not praise God, that is why we exist. Because God sent His Son for that reason. But not only does does Jesus show us who God is, but He also shows us who we are. Look at, well, you can't look at John 8, but let me read to you a little bit out of John 8. A few chapters over. He says, I do not work for my own glory. This is Jesus speaking. If I glorify myself, my glory is worthless. The one who glorifies me is my father. Let me, let me say the big words here. We want glory and honor and life and happiness. These are, these are things that we deep down long for, work for, pray for. We want them. What I love that Jesus does here in John 12 is he doesn't deny that we want them. And he doesn't deny that these aren't good things. He assumes that we want them. But he also assumes we don't know how to get the very things we want. Jesus shows us for what purpose we were born. Not only the purpose he was born, but also the purpose in which we were born. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This idea, if it doesn't grate you or cause you some concern, wake up. Because the world does not say get glory, honor, and praise this way. This is at odds with the way that we have been taught to seek honor and glory and life and happiness. We live in a culture of self-improvement and self-promotion. A hundred years from now, when historians look back at the 21st century, at least as part of the 21st century, we are going to be called the century of the self because it is focused on us and our needs Almost exclusively. This purpose for our lives, 
to not live for ourselves but for someone else is at odds with our comfort and our reputation and our safety. Those are three things that we prize in our culture, that we are comfortable, that we have a good reputation, and that we are safe, and they're good things. But verse 25 says, only if you're willing to set them aside, only if you're willing to set aside your comfort and your reputation and your safety, can you truly follow Jesus. Only if you set aside what you want most, will you truly find what you really want, what you really need. Glory and honor, life and happiness are good things. But the way to these things are counter to the world. In a world that says that I have to be true to myself, I have to give my heart what it wants when it wants it. That's the only way I'm going to be happy. Jesus says you're wrong. Real, lasting happiness only comes when you're not seeking your own happiness. It's a byproduct. It's not a direct goal. That is, you and I cannot pursue these things in of themselves, but they are a byproduct of of searching for, working for, longing for something else that's more important than them, more glorious, more honor, more life. There's a verse in the Sermon on the Mount that speaks it. It's almost a summary verse for the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 33, that says, Seek first, what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these other things will be added. If we make the other things first, then we are not seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Only when we seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness will He add the other things. That's Jesus' own path to glory. He's telling us in this passage, I don't want this. It troubles me to be separated from my God. But I want God glorified more. By wanting this more, we find our true selves. This is what it means to lose your life for Christ's sake. Then you will find your life. But this passage proposes a question to us. Is this the glory we want? And you might be thinking, well, why do I have to choose? Why can't I have both? Why can't I have the glory of God and pursue my own glory? And Jesus says, "You, you can't pursue them both. Because if you pursue them both, you will win out because you can't have two masters. It makes you a double minded person. And ultimately, when you mix the gas, the engine can't run, at least for long. Your heart was meant to run on the glory of God alone. It's like my wife has this car. It's a little big car, but it requires the high test gas. And every time I fill it up, I feel that I'm being cheated. That I have to put this super high test gas in this little bitty car. My big car takes regular. What's the deal? But that's our hearts. We keep trying to pump in all the poor refinements of our own glory and thinking that it's going to run. And it will run for a while because I've put regular in there. That wasn't smart, was it? 
It does run. I've proven it. But it does not run well. And ultimately, it will stop if I continue to do that. God made your heart to run on His glory alone. That's what Jeremiah 17 says. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Then he says, a man who trusts in his own glory or the glory of another man, he's like a shrub in the desert. He's not going to have any good come to him. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an inhabited salt land. That passage is telling us if you root your heart in your own glory, nothing good's going to come of it. But if you root your heart in the glory of God, you will not only find yourself, you will bear fruit. Jeremiah 17, 14 says, Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Why? For you are my glory. There is a glory contest going on in your heart. But only one can give you what you really want. If you pour yourself into your own glory project, you're going to lose. I'm going to lose. Nobody needs to hear this more than me. The way to life is to pour yourself into God's glory project, which is the salvation of His people. That His name might be on the lips of His people. That's why verse 26 says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, what? There will he be. Where is Jesus? He's continuing his mission on the earth through the church. We are about the glorification of God. And then it says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Notice the order. You're just going to have to decide. I'm just going to have to decide. Is Jesus worthy to follow? Which means I have to refocus my whole life, my whole ambitions around him. You say, that's easy, Bruce. We pay you to do that. Well, A, if that was true, then the most pure people in the room are going to be the pastors. And anybody who knows us. Sorry, Jeremy. We're sending you one. We're not. So it's not about you paying us to be holy. It's in the pursuit of the glory of God that we're not seeking our own glory. And then then we get our own honor. I've been looking at the wrong end of the telescope for most of my life. You know how the telescope works? If you have you at one end and God at the other, if the big end is you, you're big and God is small. But if you turn that telescope around, then God is big in your life and you are small. Do you remember what John said? John the Baptist. He finds out that Jesus is the Messiah and and he says, I must decrease so that he may increase. That's got to be written on the hearts of every follower of Jesus. That it's not about me. It's, it's not about me. It's not about getting my name on a building. It's not about, it's, it's not about me getting buried underneath this platform. It's not about you. It's not about what you have done. It's not about what you're willing to do for Christ. It's about Christ. It's about His name being exalted. But it's not about our church. 
As much as we want everybody in the community to know we exist and, and that we're sold out for Jesus, that would be the wrong goal for us. We exist together that they might praise God, that God's name might be glorified, not EP's. And we struggle with that often because we're always asking, what's good for us? Who cares what's good for us? The only thing that's good for us is what's good for Jesus. Are we yet willing to live there? Because if we're willing to live there, there's no sacrifice too great. There's no place we cannot go with the gospel. But as long as we're at the end of the telescopes, the biggest, we've got lots of reasons. Because there's my reputation. I'm concerned. How does that work? And this is the end. Let me just use two ideas from Colossians 3. Put off and put on. How do you, how do you biblically put on this new way of living where my glory doesn't matter, your glory doesn't matter, EP's glory doesn't matter, God's glory alone is what matters. Well, that's by embracing the grain principle. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if we die to our glory project, we'll bear much fruit. It was true of Jesus' life. And it's true of our life. How do we put on this new life? By faith. Isn't that really cool? He doesn't say, well, now go, go get the broom of the wicked witch of the West. Don't go get to the Mount Mordor. He doesn't give you some quest to do. He says, just receive it by faith. Your identity by faith. And it's not achieved. It is received. Because it is already accomplished but also put off that glory project of your own that's in your garage or your study or at your church. One way to do that is to have a contempt for the world's way to self-glorification. I didn't say have a contempt for the world. You can't. You're part of it. And God called it good. Jeremy Taylor says, Learn to despise the world that it is, it is to know that its stories are false. And that its hands do knit spider webs. We have to keep killing our glory project because they're like weeds in our garden of our hearts. They keep growing back. Our thirst for glory is not to be extinguished. It is to be satisfied in the glory of God. You are not working for approval. My approval, your approval, we are working from approval. We are already approved. Let me quote, and I'll be done, the football theologian Tom Brady. He did a 60-minute interview just recently because it was his eighth Super Bowl. Five wins. He admitted in the middle, it's with Steve Croft, in the middle of the interview, he admits there, there has to be something greater out there for me. I mean, who could say there's anything more for him to get? Beautiful family, beautiful life, all the money he ever wanted. So Steve Croft asked him, well, what is that? What's that one thing that you're missing in your life? We can't figure it out. And Tom Brady says, I wish I knew. And so Steve Croft says, you've, you've been to, are about to go to your eighth Super Bowl. 
You've won five of them. You've got a ring for every finger on one hand. Which one is your favorite? Tom Brady wouldn't take the bait to pick one. So he said this, the next one. Isn't that sad? The most decorated football hero in American history says the next one. Can't be satisfied. And this is the truth. Your glory project will not satisfy your heart for glory. Only God's. Truly, truly, I say to you, to me, to our church, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears fruit, much fruit. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the moment here to be on this sacred spot, to think about where we are, what we're living for, what's our purpose, where do we find happiness, life, honor, glory, and to know that to truly have those things, we have to live for someone else's glory, honor, life, and happiness. And that ours will be a byproduct because our goal is always you. That people will praise your name. That more and more people on this planet will know you and will know what Jesus has done for us and have been changed by the work of your spirit. May we be a body that is about not our glory, but yours. And we pray in the high, mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.